So, Parashat Lech Lecha. This, uh, this shir is dedicated um, to the memory of Alexander Asher Yitzchak, Ben Reb Chaim Tzvi, Hashem Yikom Demo, um, very close friend of mine, um, who happens to be also one of the reasons we have a yeshiva here. Uh, he was very instrumental. He was actually pushed both me and Rabbi Aaron. You guys have to start a yeshiva. He's been, he would be, had been talking about this for a while. And uh, some people like to talk, some people like to do. He does both. He put up a significant donation to help us get this started, uh, this yeshiva started. And he, along with, um, with George Rohr, who was really the other major, major contributor, we would not have been able to start this yeshiva. So you owe this fellow a debt of gratitude, whether you know him or not. So the Shana Bet guys are going to meet him uh, this Shabbos. Uh, if you want to meet him, stay Shana Bet, right? But um, uh, if you want to see his name, Robbie Rothenberg, you can look at the gate, right? He didn't want to be in the front of the base menor. She's a little more tsanua, but we convinced him and we put up a little shah. It says Shah Rothenberg. Um, his father passed away on Zayn Cheshvan, on Chev Cheshvan. Um, and um, he himself is named after his grandfather, right? Uh, Reb Chaim Tzvi was murdered in Auschwitz. And that's a whole story. So we're going to dedicate this shir in his memory. Um, it should also be, uh, his mother is not well, Golda Rivka Bat Nechama, that she should uh, have her a four shleima, Bezrat Hashem. Um, actually, incredibly. Okay. So I want to tell you a story. And even though the topic is going to be a little different, I actually told this story last year, the Shana Bek guys may remember this, but it just so fits this uh, story. So, when, um, when you become an officer, uh, you kind of have certain expectations. You know, you kind of figure that you're going to, you know, the men are going to be at a different level. Um, you know, you're, you're going to meet gentlemen, etc. And, you know, you're going to give a command. People are going to follow it. You have visions of Acharai, follow me into combat, and all these kinds of glorified ideas. But once you become an officer and you get to your first unit, your base, you're actually very often dealing with some of the nitty-gritty, which, you know, isn't the stuff that makes it into the movies. The guy who doesn't want to go to do kitchen duty, the guy who oversleeps and is late for his shmirah, and of course the guy who's doing shmirah, who's on guard duty, can't leave until the other guy comes and they get into a fight and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, who's going to grease the boogeyman in the tank, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it kind of wears you down a little. It's easy to stay inspired when you're in Lebanon doing patrols and looking out for Hezbollah. It's a little more difficult to stay inspired when you're sort of getting the guys all in a line and you've been ordered by the battalion uh, sergeant major uh, to go down to one of the fields near the parking lot and make sure there are no cigarette bets there. And you've got to take all your men who are trained uh, tank crewmen and just go down the line and make sure to pick up any cigarette butts. So to be inspired, that's a little more work. But of all the experiences I had, you know, both large and small difficult, there's one that absolutely stands up in my mind. Guy comes to me one morning, very upset. He had gotten a food package. Now today, you know, you guys don't get packages as much, but that's how people reached us. And a food package was a big deal. You know, you get a food package from home with your favorite cookies and your favorite crackers and whatever else it might be, right? And this guy had gotten a package and it was on his bed and he came back and there were like some things missing. A couple of chocolate bars, something else. And he was very upset. I said, well, you know, maybe you misplaced it, whatever. I mean, we were a tight-knit unit, you know. There's 
it's a pluga, there's 11 tanks, it's 30 guys, a lot of these guys serve together, Lebanon together, like, and a couple of days later, I get another such complaint, and these, you know, I started getting two or three of these complaints, and I realized we had a problem, we had a thief in the unit. Now, there is nothing worse than a thief in the unit. I had never expected to encounter something like this inside my unit. There was, there's a lot of pilfering that goes on in the army. But it's more like innocent stuff, like, you know, there's inspection, or you're finishing a course and you have to give back your gear, you're missing a canteen, and a guy goes into some other unit where he doesn't know anything, finds a canteen and swipes it. It's still gezo, it's still an isodoraisa, you still can't do it. But, you know, people get used to it and they rationalize it, you know. Listen, this canteen didn't belong to me, that canteen, it's all the armies, I'm just taking another canteen from the army, give it back, and I'm sure whoever took my canteen, he's in the army, he'll eventually, the army isn't losing it, I'm just whatever, right? This is much more serious. You're taking from one of your buddies, and there was somebody stealing things. Now, if you have a thief in the unit, you can't function as a unit. If you can't trust each other, when you're on, like, you know, in the Jordan Valley just doing routine stuff, how are you going to trust each other when you're up in Lebanon? So this is a serious issue. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, my company commander at the time I was a lieutenant, and uh, he basically shrugged it off. He's like, you know, see what you can do, tell the guys they should lock their rooms, they should put stuff, that's why you have these little aronios, these little cupboards. Anyway, <coughs> I figured we have to do something about this. So I set up a honey trap, and it took a few days, you know, leave the right thing out at the right time, call everybody out, allow somebody the possibility to go back. And it took a while, and we caught him. Caught him red-handed, stealing something with the paint on his hand from the thing that was painted. I'll spare you the details. So now we've caught this guy. It was actually devastating because he was a really good guy. And he was a good soldier. He was one of the guys that you could count on, you know, when you, when you were in a pinch. But he was a thief. And the worst part of it was he wasn't even embarrassed when I caught him. He's like, like, okay, but said there, you know, like, I'm stealing from the younger guys, you know, they did it to me, I'll do it to them, they'll do it to the next guy, like, you know, so I took some cookies, I took some chocolate, I took, you know, 50 shekels I needed, like, what's a big deal, right? So worse than the fact that, that, that he was stealing, he, he, he didn't even, he didn't even show remorse. So I decided he had to leave the unit. And I went to the company commander and I said, listen, we caught this guy, red-handed, you know. It's not like today where you have a hidden camera, but... And um, we need to kick him out of the pluga. Like, we need to go to the... So he starts hemming and hawing because it's a big deal to have a thief and to kick a guy out and then he'll be short a crew member or whatever. And uh, it became a complicated story. And I finally went all the way up to the battalion commander and I basically told him, I said, look, you're going to have an officer who refuses to work unless you get this guy to the unit. He needs to be kicked out of the battalion, needs to be put on court-martial, and needs to, in my opinion, needs to do some time in the brig. Because otherwise all the guys see this and they think it's okay to steal. So we need to put a stop to this. And I was actually amazed. I got a lot of pushback. I got pushback from my company commander. I got pushback from the guys. Because this was a veteran. And, you know, the older guys were all his buddies. And they were like poo-pooing it. So, very difficult question. In the end, we found a compromise, and the battalion commander agreed to transfer him to one of the other companies. He stayed in the battalion on the base, but he was now in a different company. The guys in my unit were pretty upset with me. You know, I had to have, a, it took a while to regain their confidence. Um, the company commander was another story and a half, and it raises an interesting question. 
Like, when is it time to part ways? When do you have to say, there is no room for compromise? You know? And this is a practical issue that you encounter all the time. You, know, you read the newspapers, and you see that, uh, you know, I don't know, the President of the United States believes in a two-state solution, and, you know, we need to find room for dialogue with the Palestinians, whatever Palestinian is, an interesting question. And, and, and you have another sort of perception that says, there's no one to talk to. And you have a third perception that says, on principle, we shouldn't talk to them. Who's right? How do you know when it's time to walk away? Or when it's time to put it on hold? Part of me says, you should always be willing to talk. Dialogue is always good. Talk to anybody who'll listen. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree. It doesn't mean you're going to you know, give in to your principles. But you should always be willing to talk. You should never stop trying to talk. Part of me says, maybe sometimes willingness to talk is dangerous. Maybe it's damaging. So how do you deal with this question? So this is actually a story that appears in this week's Parsha. And I just want you again to understand that the background to this question is, when do I compromise and when can I no longer compromise? Now this, this story, this question is a much broader question, but we're going to take a specific piece of it. There's a Gemara in Sanhedrin and Davchet that talks about, you know, Bitsua, when should a court compromise, when should they not compromise? That's a whole other discussion. We're going to take a specific piece of this pie, okay? And this, of course, is the story of Lot and Avraham. All right? So, Lot, vegam lelot haolechet Avram, right? Lot, who was also with Avram on his journey, he comes from Haram with him. What's the relationship between Avram and Lot? Lot is Avram's nephew, right? But he's really a little more than his nephew, right? Avram's brother died in strange circumstances. Chazal have their discussion about it, but not for now. And this nephew basically becomes like, he becomes like Avram's son. And remember, Avram is how old right now? <coughs> 75. Possibly seven, but we're going to call him 75, okay? 75 years old. And he has no children. He has one nephew. <coughs> and the nephew's with him. The nephew goes wherever he goes. So this is his heir. This is the future. This is his nephew, Right? And Lot walks with Avram. That's what it says. He also had lots of flock and tents. What does that mean? Lot was wealthy, right? He had stuff, right? But the land could not tolerate them, couldn't carry them both to dwell together. Now, I got to be honest with you. This is a very difficult puzzle. Sometimes you hear from people like in America, you know, well, if everybody would come to Israel, or not necessarily in America, around the world, well, it's such a little country. I mean, if everybody would come to Israel, there'd be no room, right? You want to play a fun game? You know, one day when you're no longer in yeshiva, in whatever environment you're in, it'll be a Shabbos afternoon, you'll have some friends over, you'll have people right-wing, people left-wing, people religious, people irreligious, maybe Jews and non-Jews. This is a great game. Let's play find the country on the map. And you get a globe and you spin it around and say, okay, find America. No problem. Find Russia. No problem. Find England. Okay, you could probably find England. Find Venezuela. You could probably find Venezuela. Find Israel. Now, in order to find Israel, you can't use your finger because the country on the globe is smaller than your finger. 
you got to take out your bobby pin and use the bobby pin. It's actually remarkable how many people have such a strong opinion about Israel, but they can't find it on the globe. Very interesting. Right? It's a tiny little country. So like, if, if all the, like you talk about how everybody in Israel maybe should come to Israel, if, if all the Jews in the world, if, if 13 million, or whatever, 6, 7 million more Jews came here, there'd be no room for them, right? On the one hand. On the other hand, come to my house, Bezrat Hashem, sit on my deck, and look out at the wide open, vast expanses of space. We're going to, you know, in another week and a half, we're going down to the Negev, and have this incredible few days, this, this, this retreat, get away, experience the desert, it's be awesome. And you'll see how much open space there is. So if that's true today, can you imagine the time of Lot and Avram? So how can it be that there's no room for them? Of course there's room for them. We need to understand that, right? Sometimes two people, right, they can be in a closet together, there's lots of room. And sometimes two people can be in a big hole, there's not enough room. There's obviously something more going on than the physical juxtaposition of space. But okay. Why could the land not hold them both? Because they had so much stuff. Right? There's only one garage. We got 19 cars. And they couldn't dwell together. This is one of the saddest psukim in the entire Torah. Avram Avinu. What is Avram Avinu's paradigm character trait? Chesed. He lives loving kindness. He loves to give. He'll run in the desert heat to strangers just to give them something to eat. How could you have a situation where you can't live with him? Okay. Vayehi riv ben And there seems to be a conflict between Avram's camp and Lot's camp. Between the shepherds of Avram and the shepherds of Lot. By the way, ask me an obvious question. There's a conflict between the shepherds of Avram and the shepherds of Lot. Ask me an obvious question. Yeah. What is that? What does that mean? That, do you imagine there's a conflict between Bini's shepherds and Dorit's shepherds? What a ridiculous... You know, whenever... I, I don't really tend to sit with couples and sit down with long lists of marital advice. But on occasion, you know, you're marrying a couple, you get into discussion with them, and I always tell them the same thing. Like, once you get married, you should have one bank account. You should not have two bank accounts. Not healthy. If you can't learn to share a bank account, you got bigger problems, right? We got married, I don't know, it took a month. We, one of us, I don't remember how it worked, which one of us changed our name on the bank account. We, we've had one bank account for I don't know how many years, you know. So if you, you gotta learn how to live together. So how could Avram and Lod, well, a separate shepherd, like what's going on here? Okay. And the Canaanite were then in the land. Now that's a very strange line, right? There's an argument between the shepherds of Avram and the shepherds of Lot, and the Canaanites are living in the land. I like peanut butter. Do you ski? Huh? What does this have to do with anything? But okay. So Rashi, Rashi picks up on this. Rashi notices this is a clue. This is a clue. When you're learning Torah, sometimes Torah gives you clues, right? What is going on here? Okay? So Rashi in Pasuk Zion says the following. Um, Hang on a second, sorry. It was an argument. What does Rashi say? The shepherds of Lot were wicked. And they were, they, were, they were grazing their flocks on other people's lands. Can't do that. It's not yours. 
And the shepherds of Avram were telling them, you can't do this, it's Gezel. Now this is interesting. So I'm a shepherd of Avram. And I see the shepherd of Lot, and he's grazing in Mr. Kaplan's field. And according to Rashi, I'm saying, you shouldn't be doing that, it's Gezel. What do I care? It's not my field. I'm not doing it. Why am I telling him that he shouldn't be doing it? What would you have to say about the shepherds of Avraham in order to understand this comment from Rashi? Again, this is Medrash. It does not matter to me whether this actually or literally happened so much as the Medrash is giving me an idea. And we'll get to this. What would you have to say about the shepherds of Avraham? What do you think? Yeah? Pardon? Okay, they were taught ethics, but much more than ethics, yeah? Pardon? Well, it seems that in the context of the Medrash, both sets of shepherds know that the land's been promised to Avram. Like, that's an interesting question. Like, Avram wakes up the next day, you know, it's actually a little sad. He has this prophecy, God says, you're going to have this land, it's going to be yours. He's got nowhere to tell it to. He has no children, right? So, he tells his shepherds, okay, we're hanging out in the flocks. Now, what, what word would you say categorizes a person who sees someone else doing something wrong and tells them you shouldn't be doing that? What would you say? Pardon? Empathetic. Empathy? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Am I empathetic to you? If I was empathetic to you, I wouldn't say you shouldn't be doing that and say, oh, I understand why you're doing oh, that. Oh, you think he's empathetic to the Kananim? So you're assuming that the reason he's telling this is because he cares about the Kananim. That's one possibility. He cares about the Kananim, so he's broad-minded. Another possibility, yeah? Pardon? God-fearing. He's God-fearing because he's saying you shouldn't do this because God's going to punish you. Yeah? Okay. I would go with, yeah? Pardon? Moral? Well, moral is a tough word to define, but okay, yeah? He's giving musr. <laughs> it's the first musr schmooze. He's stark musr. I would call it responsibility. You feel a sense of responsibility. Now, who do you feel responsibility to? It could be you feel responsibility to the image of Abraham. It could be you feel a sense of responsibility to Lot or to Lot shepherds. Like, we can be better than this. This is an important point. Like, what is the correct answer when someone gives you musr? What's the best thing you can say when someone gives you musr? Like, if somebody really gives you musr, I mean, I've seen musr masters. I'm not a musr master, and, you know, sometimes I'll try to get stark musr, but, but a real bal musr, if he gives you musr, your face turns white. You know, like, I mean, I never personally got musr from a vluchenzin, but I know a couple of people who did, and they were shaking by the time they were done. And he was the most loving human being I ever met. But he, when he turned it on, he turned it on. You know, I give it away too much. Like, I give you musr, but then, like, I feel bad, so I give you a hat. Like, I'm, you know, not a real bal musr. A bal musr, if a bal musr really gives you musr, and the face drain, your blood drains, you know what you should say? Want to take us? You should say thank you. Because the only reason you give something musr is because you care about them. You care about something. So this has the potential to be a beautiful moment. Thank you so much. We have things left, but it doesn't work that way. They're not interested. Omrim, what do they say? Nitna ha'aretz Avram. What are you talking about, Gezel? Hashem promised the land to Avram. Velo in your race, he's got no one to inherit it. Velo show. 
and Lot's going to be the inheritor. So ain't a gesel, it's not gesel. So they have this argument. All right? We'll get back to that line. So now, Avram realizes this is not good. First of all, from a practical perspective, if your camps are arguing, you can't get anything, that's not healthy. Right? If my men are arguing with each other, I've got to fix this. If the students have a machloket, right? there are very few things in this yeshiva that will cause me to drop everything I'm doing. Like if two guys are really arguing with each other or fighting, God forbid, or something like that. I hope we don't have that here, but if we did, that would give me a lot of pause. Like that, that could destroy, I mean, that's a horrible thing, right? Okay, so what does Avram do? Fayomer Avram elot. Al let there not be conflict between you and me and between our shepherds. Ask me another obvious question. Pardon? We said the shepherds are fighting. How did Avram find that? Oh, come on. If the shepherds are fighting, you find out about it. Now, again, there shouldn't be a conflict between you and me and our shepherds. Why did it say there's a conflict? Ah, it didn't say there's a conflict between Avram and Lot. It says there's a conflict between the shepherds. It does say, they couldn't live there, there was some problem, but it didn't say they were in conflict. So perhaps Avram understands, if it starts there, it's going to end up here. Right? Let's not, let's not let this grow. There shouldn't be a conflict. Now, let me ask you a question, right? That's what Pasek says. Because we're brothers. This is his nephew. He brought him with him from Haran, he came on the journey. When they went down to Egypt, he came with them. He came back up with him. Achim anachnu. I want you to understand the word ach is a powerful word. You want to have an experience? Next time we have Ben Azmane, maybe Hanukkah, whatever, Sunday morning. Go to the bus station. Yerushalayim, Tel Aviv, wherever you are. 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. Okay? And go to the area where the Chayalim are. They're all getting on their buses. You know, they're gathering, they're bringing their stuff from home, they're chimidane in their, their kit bags, and they're a little bummed, you know, got to go back to the army. You know what cheers them up? They see their, their, their buddies. And you know what word they use? Achi. I remember I used to come to Miluim. We would start reserve duty, you know, they have like three and a half weeks. And you hadn't seen these guys in like six months, eight months, a year. And that was the word. Right? Where does that come from? Avram Avinu. This is the antithesis of which famous line in the Torah? Hashomer Achi Anochi. He, he's not my brother. I don't need to watch my brother. Avram says, we should not achim anachnu. We're brothers. Brothers don't fight. We're not kind in heaven. So what do you expect next? The whole land. Like, we got the whole land. Look at all this space. He Separate. Right? Gader Afrada is what the separation fence is called in Israel. It comes from here. Let's separate. Separate from me. He says, I don't care. Like, whatever you want. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Whatever you want. We just need to split up. That is unbelievable. You're Avram Avinu. Come on. Give the guy a hug. Let's sit down. I bought you, you know, Dunkin' Donuts. And let's make it up. Nope, we got to split up. There is something in this story that seems to say that no less than Avram Avinu, the Ish Chesed par excellence says, this, this can't be. We got to split up. On this, we can't compromise. 
very difficult to understand. By the way, there's an allusion to part of the problem in the next verse. Now, Lot lifts up his eyes, which is a whole expression that's interesting. Where else do we find that line? Right? You know, when a person looks his eyes, he's seeing more than just the physical. But all right, we're not going to go there right now. And he sees the whole Jordan Valley. It's lush, like the delta region of the Nile Valley in Egypt. And so Lot says, that's for me. And Lot leaves and they split up. The brothers split up. This is, this is a terribly tragic puzzle. By the way, what did Avram hope for? I don't think Avram wanted this reaction. I think maybe Avram wanted Lot to say, are you talking about split up? I love you. Come on, give me a shmuchel. No, no, what are you talking about? We're going to fix this. Okay, I'll go here, you go there. By the way, isn't it interesting? This is like the equivalent of the nephew of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he's in the house of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And there's a problem because, I don't know, his kids are fighting with the Lubavitcher Rebbe's kids. It's not good, right? Kids, but if you did, right? And so the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, listen, we shouldn't have conflict in the house. Let's just split up. So, so let, let's say that the guy doesn't say, wait, Rebbe, what are you talking about? I'll teach my kids, we're going to fix it. So the nephew of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, living in his house all the time, says, you know what? There's a great brothel up for sale in Times Square. I'm going to go invest. Like, this is ridiculous. He goes from Avram to Sdom. And by the way, I think I mentioned this in one of the shiurim this, this week, but just to make the point, Rashi notes this. There's an interesting pasuk here. It says, right, Vayisalot mikedem. Lot travels from the east. But that's not possible. There's a debate where Avram and Lot are having this discussion. Where is Avram living then? One opinion is he's already in Hebron. One opinion is he's in Bethel. Now, if you look at the map of Israel, right, there's the Jordan Valley, there's the Mediterranean, and then there's the central mountain range of Yudav Shomron. Okay? So if this is Yerushalayim, if this is Yerushalayim, and this is... Uh, Hebron, this is Betel. It's the same mountain region. So if you're standing, whether it's Betel or Hebron, and you're looking down on the valley, which way are you looking? The Jordan Valley? You're looking east, right? Towards Jordan. So Lot leaves Avram and goes down into the valley to the east, so therefore he goes from the west. So why does it say Vaisalot Mikedem? Why does it say he goes from the east? It should say Miyam. He goes from the west. By the way, why does it even say where he's going from? Well, what does that interest me? It should say, He goes to the valley. So the Sifte Chachamim notes this, right? He says, the, the, the Mizrahi, one of the commentaries on Rashi. He should be going east, not traveling from the east. And he says, this needs some thought. And he gives an answer, which I don't get. It, it, it doesn't make sense. He says, well, we're not really talking about east and west. We're talking about left and right. And it doesn't make sense to me. Rashi, by the way, suggests a possibility, which doesn't make sense. If we look at Rashi, what does Rashi say? What does Rashi say? 
Mikedem. He notes this issue. Nasa meitzel Avram v'alachlo l'marav v'oshel Avram nitzan notzea mimizrach l'marav. He goes to the west of Avram, so it's like he's going to the east. It's difficult. I've tried to figure this out. I've read Mefarshim and figured this out. It doesn't sit well with me. I think it didn't sit well with Rashi. Whenever Rashi gives an explanation, and then he gives another one, it's because the first one isn't, he, he knows it's not. So he gives a medrash. Now remember, Rashi comes to explain Pshat. So if Rashi brings a medrash, it's because he thinks there's a problem in Pshat. And this is a great example. Umidrash Agadah, he siyatzmo mikadmono shel olam. Amar ef shi loba avram veloba elohav. Lot wasn't just leaving Avram. He was leaving Mikedem. He was leaving Kadmono, the source of reality. He was, he, was, he was not just walking out of Wayu to go to the, you know, the Chabad house in Penn. He was leaving Wayu. He was leaving Wayu. He was leaving everything about Wayu. Not good. So this is a disaster. What's going on? Why? How did this happen? How does Lot... Now, on the one hand, I take great comfort in this. Because if Avram could bring up a lot, and lot could still go to Stum, then it means that when we mess up with our kids, okay, so lot went to Stum, my kid isn't in Stum, Baruch Hashem, right? And, and you know, one of the most, uh, look, it, it, most, that's a difficult word. One of the tragic realities of our world is that there is a very significant portion of kids who grow up in traditional, religious, stark, from whatever word you want to use, homes. And for some reason, it doesn't speak to them. And they lose a life of Jewish meaning. You know, they call this in, in parlance, off the derech, as if there's the derech and now you're off the derech, off the path, on the path. But, you know, it's a painful thing. I mean, I'm close to someone who, very serious Talmud Chacham. These kids, you know, it's painful. It's mama's painful. But it happened to Avram Avinu. And what's really interesting is, Lot didn't have to go to Stum. Avram could have said, let's work this out. Avram sees something and says, this isn't going to work. In this reality, we can't live together. Right? So, I got a few questions. We'll answer these questions <coughs> and we'll make sense. First of all, why does Avram not stop Lot from going to Stum? Why does he not stop Lot from going to Stum? Right? <clears throat> now, what's the simple answer to that question? How is he supposed to stop going to stone? What do you mean? You're not going to stone. He doesn't even say, don't go. Listen, I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. There's a magnificent book that relates to this topic. There was a woman who, um, well, it's a longer story, but <clears throat> a, a woman who's actually a professor, teaches classes at YU and Stern, um, and she... Uh, I met her many, many years ago. She and her husband uh, were coming to Israel. Um, he really wanted to take her around Israel. He was hoping to make Aliyah. He eventually did make Aliyah. And she was in the middle. Of, so I took them around a couple of days. And, and she was in the middle of a fascinating project. Um, they had both gotten a little, married a little later. I think he was like almost 40. She was 30. And so he kept, you know, he was getting to know her. And he grew up in a less traditional home and became from what you call a Baal Tshuva, I think we're all supposed to be. But she grew up in a more traditional household, and she went to a yeshiva high school out in L.A. somewhere. She was in the Persian community. And, um, and when they went to L.A. to meet, you know, the family, whatever, so she would bump into some of her friends. And whenever she met a friend, so, you know, 
her husband to be, you know, would sort of ask questions, they would talk, and then she would say, well, she's not really, like, religious anymore. And it just sort of hit her all of a sudden how many of her friends that she was meeting were not religious anymore. And he was fascinated by this. You're telling me a kid goes to Yeshiva High School and it's not a guarantee that he's, not, that he's going to be religious because he didn't grow up in that world. So this really sent her on a journey, and she became curious and started to think about this. Why do kids leave the fold? And there are some who estimate as many as 25% in the Datilumi community are, are sort of, <coughs> whether some of them come back is a good question, but so she decided to research this. And she eventually published it as a book. Um, while I can't say I agree with all the conclusions that she has there, I think it's a, it's a well thought out book and well worth the read. And there are basically three sections to this book. The first section to this book is simply stories. She collected incredible stories of people, you know, you know, she tells the story of one guy who's a Frumayid who lives in Borough Park and, you know, he's got like a whole bunch of kids and married and, and, and goes to the Rebbe and loves the Tish on Shabbos afternoon. But every Shabbos, he walks out of the community a few blocks to where he's parked a car where it's safe for him to do this, gets in his car, drives into Manhattan, does whatever he does to get it out of his Yetzirah and then goes back in time for Shal Shittas. And she actually asked him eventually, like, what makes you go back for Shal Shittas for, for third meal? She said, I love the singing. Well, this person's living a double life, and, and, and this happens often. So the first section is just these fascinating, powerful, painful stories. The second section, she went to like, I don't know how many, 50 of the top Jewish educators in the world to ask their opinion on this. Like, why do you think this is happening? What can we do about it? She went to Rabbi Riskin, she went to Rabbi Cardozo, she went to Rabbi Sachs, she went to Rabbi Steinsalt. I mean, she really collected some, some treatises on the topic. And the third section, given that she's also studied psychology, is her treatise on what she thinks works and what she thinks doesn't work on this topic and why it happens from a data-driven perspective. It's a fascinating book, right? And one of the things she says there, right, is that the success stories, in other words, kids who do come back, come because people leave the door open. They say, I'm not going to judge you. I love you. It pains me, but I love you. And eventually, people sometimes find their way back. Okay, right? So why does Avram not stop him? You can't give somebody something that they don't want. That is such a powerful educational message. You cannot give something to somebody if they don't want to receive it. Hashem, by the way, desperately wants to give us, but created the world in such a way that he can't give to us unless we want to receive what he's giving us. When do we work on wanting what Hashem wants to give us? Davni. Okay. Second question. So Avram destroys his relationship with the only person who's the heir apparent, the only person he can give Judaism to to pass it along. Remember, this is before he's been told, Kivi Yitzchaki Karel Chazara. He doesn't know that's coming. So the truth is, Avram does not destroy his relationship with Lot. How do I know this? Obvious answer. Right, because, because when, when he hears, where is this? Um, in Perak Yedalad, this crazy story about um, um, this is Perak Yedalad, Pasuk Yedalad. Easy to remember. 1414. And Avram hears that his brother has been captured. Calls him his brother. He's really his nephew. Ach here means someone I love dearly. After the Recha right? 
He gets his men together and they go to war. He fights a world war to save his nephew because his nephew's like his brother. So they have not split this up yet. By the way, does Lot ever come back? Yes, he does. When does Lot come back? And this I heard from Rabbi Riskin many, many years ago. No. After Sdom, Lot and his two daughters escape. You all remember what happened to his wife, right? Um, and what happens? A terrible story, right? Incest, basically. They get him drunk and they sleep with him. And children are born of this. And one of those children is called Moab. And from Moab comes Rut. And from Rut comes David Amelach. So the line of Lot comes back. And that's a whole interesting discussion. That's a whole interesting discussion. But okay. All right? Um, what are we going to get to here? What is the issue here? The Torah tells me, first of all, how did this happen to Lot? How did Lot in the house of Avram become this way? This is actually very simple. Rav Salvechik talks about it. Nechama Leibovich points this out in one of her articles. Right? It's very interesting. When, when, when Avram comes up from Haran, it says, right, Vayelach Avram kasher diber elav Hashem, beginning of Lech Lecha, as Hashem told him, Avram leaves Haran and goes to Eretz Canaan, Vayelach he told Lot, and Lot goes with him, Vayavram ben chamesh shana, right? Vayikach et Sarai ishto, vet Lot ben achi, vet kol ruchusham. Avram takes Sarai, and he takes Lot, and he takes all their property, vet kol nefesh, right? All the cattle, they take everything with them. They get to Israel, Almost immediately as a famine, what does Avram do? They go down to Mitzrayim. Remember this? Now in Mitzrayim, Hashem fulfills the first of his promises to Avram. Right? You will become wealthy. Your wealth will increase. He becomes wealthy. And so does Lot, as we pointed out at the beginning of this year. And when they come back up from Mitzrayim, this is now the beginning of Perakit Gimel, Avram comes back up finally from Mitzrayim. Who? V'yishto, v'kol now Lot is not at the beginning. He's not even after Sarah, his wife. He's after the property. Lot, Sarah, the property, and Lot. You know what separates Avram and Lot? The stuff. The stuff separates Avram and Lot. Something happens to Lot in Mitzrayim. It messes him up. His priorities change. He's affected by an environment that's unhealthy. And no matter what Lot Avram wants to give him, when you get your head into a different space, in Malasot. One of the greatest challenges in life is to think about what is my environment? How does it affect me? Very hard to think about it once you're in that environment. This is a challenge many of you are going to have next year when you go to campuses. How do I make sure that I'm impacting my environment and not just that my environment is impacting me, especially in a negative way? Right? So... What was Lot's mistake? This is interesting. It's true that it was Lot's shepherds that were having the issue. But Lot didn't stop it. If you stand by when evil occurs, you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Most people say, like, I don't want to get involved. We're involved because we're human beings. And, and there's no, you know, George Bush, the original... Uh, no, George Bush II, after the World Trade Center, made a famous speech. He was sitting in a kindergarten there in Florida, I think. And he made a famous speech. 
And he said, make no mistake about it, this is a war. And he was speaking to the world, and he said, there's no middle ground here. You're either with us or you're against us. I remember hearing that speech live, and I remember thinking, finally a president gets it. I really think that's true. Like, you can't fight terror with compromise. You're with us or you're against it. Unfortunately, that didn't last. But okay, right? Lot didn't stop it. When does someone cross the line? You know when someone crosses the line? And we'll finish with this thought. This is what I think Rashi is saying. Rashi points out, why does Rashi take the time to say that Lot's shepherds were saying, what are you talking about? It's, 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 it's not Gezel. You know when you cross the line? It's not when you do something wrong. It's when you justify it, when you rationalize it. You know, the Sefer Arikarim of Yosef Alba. Yosef Alba was a late Rishon. I believe he lived in Italy, but I might be wrong. It might be Spain. Um, and his Sefer, Sefer Arikarim, is a, it's a pretty important Sefer, right? And he makes a, a fantastic point, right? He says that there are two things, there are two ways that tshuva will never happen. There are two ways that a person can't sort of undo their mess and get back to where they're supposed to be. One is when you don't recognize that something's wrong, right? That's the first stage of tshuva, akaras achet. And the second is, you do recognize it's wrong, but you rationalize it. And that's a lack of harata. That's a lack of regret. And I'll give you a great example of this. If you look at the story um, of, Shmu- of Shmuel and Shaul, right? Shaul is told to go destroy a malik, right? Shmuel makes this very clear. This is Shmuel Aleph. Perek uh, Yudal. Right? So what does Shmuel say? Hang on. Sorry. One second. One second. I apologize. Yeah. Perek, uh, sorry. Perek Tedvav. Pasuk Gimel. In Shmuel Aleph. Atalech, now go, says Shmuel Navi to Shaul the king. Vikita et amalech vecharamtem et kol ha-shalau. Smite amalech, destroy everything they have. Velotach molalav. And have no pity on them, have no mercy. You need to destroy evil. You know, you get the SS guard, and he's behind the barracks, and he's a murderer. En malasot. And kill every last man, woman, child, and animal. Destroy everything about that culture. Now, just to be clear. We have a very hard time understanding this. Or at least I do. Uh, but existentially, you know, or maybe more intellectually, I can understand that if Hashem says, if you really believe Hashem, and Hashem created all of us, if Hashem says... Could a culture theoretically, could a society theoretically reach a level that's so evil that the world would be better off without it in its entirety? If there's anything we learned from World War II, that would be one of them. Now, you can't decide that, and I can't decide that. I don't even think a Sanhedrin can decide that. But Hashem can decide that. That's what Nevi'im are for. So Shmuel and Nevi says, this evil needs to be destroyed. Now, by the way, on a philosophical level, and Rav Soloveitchik believed it was at an actual level, on a a reality-based level, this was the spawn of all the evil that ever came into the world that wanted to destroy the Jewish people, right? If, if Shaul would have destroyed Amalek and finished the job, there would have been no Holocaust. 
There would have been no Spanish Inquisition. There would have been no Chumrin. Unbelievable what a different world we would live in. There'd be 50 or 100 million Jews today. Right? Destroy them. So what happens? Right? He goes. He hasn't quite finished the job. Some of you know the story. So Shmuel comes to him and says, What's going on? Listen to what Shaul says. Ayomer Shaul. El Shmuel. Asher shamati b'kol Hashem. Va'eleich baderach asher shlachani Hashem. I listened to what Hashem said. I did what Hashem said. I destroyed Amalek, I brought Agag. Shaul doesn't even admit he did something wrong. If you don't know you did something wrong, you can't fix it. Then finally Shmuel says to him, what are you talking about? He did something wrong. So he has no choice, this is a Navi. So what's the next thing he says? He says, The people took it, right? I made a mistake. Because I was afraid of the people and I listened to them. What do you call that? That's called rationalizing. And Shmuel understands. Like, why doesn't Shmuel let Shaul do tshuva? Why is there no forgiveness here? Because when a person rationalizes his mistake, he's not ready to fix it. And as long as a person thinks he isn't wrong or he rationalized what he did, he'll never do tshuva. That, that you can't make peace with. That you can't make peace with. That's exactly what's going on here in the story of Rabbi Ravinu, right? There's not even a karasachet. He doesn't even see that he's wrong. So if you don't see you're wrong, you can't fix it. The Ramchal, Ramosh Chaim Lutzato, the Mesil Sisharim, he talks about this in Perak Yud. Perak Yud is a chapter that talks about Nikiyut, whether a person can become Naki, clean of all negative midot. Not that you're angry and you fight it and overcome it, but that you can remove it. It's a very high level that most people don't reach. And at the end of it, right, talks about midata nekiyuti hayota adam naki legamre mikol midara kol chet. That a person can actually be clean of every bad character trait, right? At the end, that's the beginning of the prayer. At the end of the prayer, he says, Umnam vadai shamida zot kasha. It's very difficult to attain this. Ki teva adam chalash filibo nifteal nekala umatil laatzmo advarim shuchal nitzob behem kadeata. Because the person will always permit himself things that he can find the rationalization for. This is the foundation of not achieving what we need to achieve. So on a practical level, when do you say it's time to walk away? When there's no one to talk to. When someone doesn't recognize there's a mistake, you know? I'm not debating whether we could make, I believe one day we're going to make peace with the Arabs. And it's already starting in different countries and that's a beautiful thing. The Pasuk says that when Avram dies, they bury him together. In fact, it says Yitzchak first. And Rashi there says, Yishmael matzat At the end of his life, Yishmael comes back around. That's a whole discussion. And there are Mepharshim that say that the day will come and Yitzchak and Yishmael will learn to live together. I believe that day will come. But I don't think you can bring that day as long as someone is doing evil and doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. Let's incentivize people to murder Jews, terrorists. You can't talk to a person like that. And if he does realize it's something wrong, he rationalizes it. So as soon as you see that, and on a personal level, ask yourself that question. When something's wrong, right? So there's one person who sits in front of the dorms and he's talking late at night. He doesn't think it's such a big deal. Let them, what do you mean? They live, they live in the rover. Don't they know they're tourists? Let them put on double windows. That person can't do tshuva. You can't talk to a person like this. There's no point in having a discussion. 
Then you get the point where says, yeah, but you know, my friend was down, I was helping them. That's rationalizing. Very, very dangerous. I think what Avram is trying to say is that we have to decide, we have to absolutely refuse to live in a state of conflict. And that's just one of the many messages that one can find in this week's Pasha. A little food for thought on Pasha Lech Lecha. A lot more to talk about, but we'll stop the Pasha here. Um,